On today's episode, we hear from one manufacturer about the journey from their garage to a global empire to ultimately being sold. This episode is full of ideas and strategies for successful marketing tactics, but the big takeaway is how you can target multiple audiences while selling multiple products. Their secret, empathy, and story. The better the story, the greater the sale. People buy from people. And the key to scaling is how effectively you tell your story. This is a great episode full of inspiration to get you thinking about how you can resonate with your audience on a deeper, more emotional level to ultimately grow sales and grow your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Smarter Building Materials Marketing Podcast, helping you find better ways to grow leads, sales, and outperform your competition. All right, everybody, welcome to Smarter Building Materials Marketing, where we believe your online presence should be your best salesperson. I am Zach Williams, alongside my co-host, Beth Pompniklov. We've got a great show lined up for you today. We are really excited to welcome Greg Roll. He is the principal of the Role Model and Family founded Roll Faucets. Greg, we are so excited that you are here. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm very excited to join you. Thank you. So Greg, for our listeners, give us a little bit of your background, what you do, and then we'll dive into talking a little bit about how people can be more effective in their marketing and sales. Sure. Well, as best noted, our family, Roll, established Roll LLC back in 1982. That was the, the company was started by our father, Ken, and my brother, Lou, and then another brother, Mark, joined, uh, and then I came on board officially in 1993. And over the years, you know, the, the company grew from really introducing, notably, the first pull-out faucet, which was a, a new thing back in 1982. But uh, along with that, it was a level of European quality and design that, particularly in the plumbing in decorative plumbing category hadn't really been seen before. It was pretty much considered a kind of a commodity market. And there were a few sort of decorative faucet lines, but they were more on the bath side and they kind of evolved out of hardware companies. But when my father just sort of discovered this product line over at a trade show in Germany, he realized there was a, an opportunity in the marketplace. And the company he was with wasn't really interested in, in working you know, with uh, a real high-end manufacturer. In fact, the, the message back to him when he suggested introducing this product under their label was, you know, no one will ever spend $250 on a kitchen faucet. You know, at that time, they might spend 50 to 75 if that was really, you know, high-end. So the idea of, of introducing a product line that was four to five times higher than and the kind of the standard was a risk, but I think he, he understood at that time European products, particularly appliances, and cabinetry and kind of that Euro style was starting to come into the larger metro markets like New York Metro and Los Angeles. And so he moved our family from Chicago to Southern California and started that business. And really, you know, he, he left the, the former company and he was an entrepreneur at 48, 49. So kind of an interesting, you know, to when we think back on, on that scene, you know, the, the office was the spare bedroom. The warehouse was the trunk of the car, and he'd literally fill up the trunk of the car and uh, head out and, and place these products in the marketplace. And fortunately, he had been you know, in the building materials industry for many years, particularly focused on, on kitchen. So he knew the showrooms, the kitchen and bath designers, 
And so, uh, and he knew the marketplace across the country. So he really had the strategy in mind. He may have not had a lot of uh, resources, let's say, in the beginning, but he had the experience and the confidence and the right product, I think, at the right time. And also, as I, I mentioned before, you know, at that time, you know, he was really catching what we call kind of this boomer wave. You know, that generation was just starting to enter its, you know, home formation years, you know, late 20s, early 30s, and really so well positioned, you know, very, I was a wealthy generation. They were interested in luxury. You know, this was the early 80s. So that kind of conspicuous consumption was, you know, a little bit more the style. And that the force of that, that generation and that the strength of their kind of that buying power and their focus on home and particularly kitchen and bath. So certainly buoyed, you know, our company early on and through the years and through the, you know, the various trials and tribulations and successes and setbacks. But I think the whole industry and that, that kind of luxury market within kitchen and bath grew from what might have been, you know, single digits into, you know, healthy kind of, you know, teens, maybe even going towards 20% it's, um, uh, in the late 90s. So or actually up until the Great Recession, you know, but we were able to build back. And it was just a, it's an amazing kind of uh, journey from one product to, you know, sourcing from over 20 different factories from Western Europe through North America and even New Zealand. We had some partners there too. So it's been a great experience. And, and I think the, the lessons learned really are both kind of the art and the science of business. And I think a lot of you know, times, I think, as you were saying before, it's, it, people want to focus kind of on the process and product and, and data. And I think there's a real human side. As I was telling someone the other day, I think empathy is the first step towards getting the spec mm. and really understanding, you know, your, your customer and, and, you know, being hungry, you know, you want to achieve, you want to you know, be successful, but I think you also have to be humble and, you know, really listen and understand what's motivating your, your customer, whether that's in a, a, a B2B or, or a B2C. There's so much good information. I hardly know where to start. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Right? That was awesome. That was awesome. What I want to ask you, Greg, is now you've seen the life cycle of a building product manufacturer go from startup in your second bedroom to international manufacturer. And you said something else a minute ago about how empathy is the cornerstone of getting the spec. Talk to me about marketing, sales, and how to get in the spec, you know, as you've seen the life cycle of, of role, what's changed and as well as what are some like tried and true tactics for manufacturers to learn from if they want to grow their sales and specifically grow specifications? Sure. One of the things we like to, to do in our, in our company, uh, like my dad having that kind of corporate background and, and he would call himself a corporate tenure, a kind of combination. He had the entrepreneurial spirit, but a corporate training. And a lot of those tools really came in handy, both internally, you know, no matter what, whatever size of the business, again, if you're just starting out, but also in communicating with, you know, our own teams, our sales teams, and then ultimately our customers. One of those things would be, you know, the use of, of formulas and ac- acronyms and the one like DP and E, come to mind. Whereas D is, is differentiated. So, you know, from a product standpoint, 
making sure that you have a story of differentiation, you know, that, you know, whether it's a, a, a functional improvement, better quality at a at same price or lower price, what's the unique, you know, sort of backstory? Uh, what's the origin story behind your product or your service for that matter? P is always profitability, you know, particularly at B2B, you know, our company, we sold through distribution, so different channels, but at each step, there had to be a story of profitability in working with our product line. And that extended, you know, it had to be profitable for our sales team. You know, we had most of our representatives were independent reps, right? So they're working on commission. So obviously that had to be worth their while to go out and advocate and support particularly a new product line. And then, you know, in the showroom, obviously the person who, the owner, the manager, they need to see that your program is profitable and worth investing, you know, time and space in a, in a, in a retail environment. And, and the people selling the product, you know, on the showroom floor, you know, there's all kinds of you know, benefits and, and stiff programs and that kind of thing that are pretty typical, but uh, they need to see that when they're working with that product, it's a benefit to them. The specifier, so talking about the spec, has to see a benefit in selecting your product over something else. So there has to be something compelling about it. So again, either, you know, in a building material sense, I can imagine that, you know, see either it performs better, it's easier to work with, it's a more dependable, you know, from a sourcing standpoint, better service. Obviously, your, your service team has to be, you know, second to none. And that makes a huge difference. So you get the greatest product. But if you're, the team in the field isn't uh, well supported and keeping promises, that product's going to get you know, set aside for another selection. So then finally, E, and that, that kind of leads into this E being easy. You know, your product has to be easy to work with, easy to specify. You know, ideally, if it's, if it's something that I mean, end user is also seeing, it has to be easily attractive, whether it's a design or a function. And then that easy also goes back to the profitability. So if I'm selling a brand or specifying a brand, Let's say the product or the money I make is money I keep because, you know, there are no after-sale issues. Or if there is a need for after-sale service, it's second to none. And again, you know, I'm I'm not going back and kind of giving back that profitability in having to deal with, you know, any kind of issues after after the sale. So again, that's, I think, a very general approach to, I think, how, how one succeeds. You know, getting into the marketing of brands. Our product line, as I mentioned, was considered a luxury brand. We built the company around sort of this luxury strata within the kitchen and bath world. We had to become very good storytellers. And that's where I think the the power of story is really important. And not just with a, a decorative product, but I think any product, having a real sense of you know, its origin, the development. We had the, the great fortune of dealing with factories that were in beautiful parts of, you know, Western Europe. You know, many of our factories are in, in the north of Italy. That must have been nice, right? In a town that's actually known as the village of Fossets, Lago <laughs> de Orta. It's about an hour north of Milan. And it's you know, kind of get up the mountains. It's a lake region. It's absolutely beautiful. It's also very historically connected with Metalwork, Alessi, if you know the brand Alessi, they're based there. There's, and it may have been because of the resources in the area or the ability of, of access to water, but there was a, a, a real generational tradition of working with metal and brass. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, the, the plumbing industry, there are a number of different factories, both commercial products as well as decorative products. And you know, people do components in that area. So there was a lot of, of storytelling that we had access to, which again, made it a compelling for, again, the end user, the specifier. We had product in, you know, in England, uh, we have two factories or, or companies based in England, Parent Row and Shaw's Original, which are now part of House of Roll as well. And again, wonderful you know, stories of you know, both engineering and artistry, authentic original designs. The Shaw's story is really interesting. You know, it, it's a company that goes back to late 1800s and making fire clay sinks, the apron front sinks, which are so popular now and have been, they still make them, you know, kind of by hand. And it's still a really special product with a lot of, of human effort that goes into it. So again, that's something compelling. And that brand, you know, I'd say one of the things that we also learned over the years was that, you know, Roll essentially became a brand, but originally we were a sales and marketing company and a distribution company. Hmm. And we evolved over time and we learned a couple lessons that uh, you know, we, we had to be our own brand. Roll, there is no factory with Roll you know, above the door. We were working with other manufacturers, some of which had great stories, but you know, trying to incorporate all their brands you know, wouldn't necessarily be, it would be more confusing. So Roll was always top of line. But other companies like a Parent Row or a Shaw's their brand story was so authentic and contributed so well to their story and to their value that we, we utilized that. And eventually that, that Shaw's original, the sinks are distinguished by a, a kind of a blue diamond says Shaw's original, you know, 1897. And people would look for that, mm-hmm. particularly as, you know, commodity or things are, you know, other products come in and try to you know, offer this that look for a lower price. People would say, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna step up. I'll spend more for the the Shaw's sink with that blue diamond because that's the original and that's what I want in my kitchen." So, again, finding the balance between, you know, when to highlight brands within you know that have great stories if you're if you're offering you know multiple products and when to make sure that the the main focus is on your brand. I think it would be another lesson learned. I'd love to dig in a little more about what you're saying about story. We are big believers in story and it's something that comes up again and again, especially for products that could potentially be positioned as commodities. Story becomes even more important. But specifically, Greg, I'd love to get your experience with how, from Roll's perspective, you've solved a problem or at least you're solving the problem that a lot of manufacturers have, which is you have multiple product lines, multiple product families, and multiple audiences that each of those mm-hmm. product lines are speaking to. Could you talk to us a bit about how you take those into consideration? How are you speaking to everyone, but keeping a very clear message at the same time? Yeah, it's an interesting balancing act. I think, A, it's, it's understanding who all the end users are or who all the, the stakeholders are you know, within your, your distribution channel down to the end user. Um, and again, that's where that empathy, I think, comes in. And, and really, you know, taking the time to understand, you know, you know big brands oftentimes will, will do, you know, customer, will de- develop customer personas, you know, and that's a typical more of a consumer brand process. 
But I think it's well worth, even on the, the building product side, that we think in, in, in those terms. And one of the things that we did over the years that I think helped distinguish us was looking at the lessons that other product, say, luxury categories employed and, and saying, how do we take those approaches and, and use them in, in our world? Because ultimately, we're all selling to the same customer. You know, that luxury consumer might be you know, buying fashion or clothing or jewelry or travel or you know, dining out. Those were our competition. You know, we looked within our industry and we had a lot of our conversations with, let's say, our friends within the National Kitchen and Bath Association, for instance. And I remember very early on, the message was, you know, the competition isn't necessarily the, the showroom across town or even that display next to yours in the showroom. It's really the other ways people might spend their money instead of, you know, upgrading their kitchen. Yep. Right. So kind of understanding that. And that was really fun to to employ as we talk about this language of luxury. So for us, it was looking outside our world and seeing, you know, what was appealing to that buyer in other areas of their life and bring that into to our story. Kind of getting back to, you know, when you're dealing with different products and different levels of price point, and perhaps sub-brands, again, having a clear idea of who each you know, of those brands is uh, serving. And I think developing the stories for each of them very clearly and making sure that those stories are well, they're well documented and they're shareable and they're clear all the way down the line. I think, you know, in our world, we could have the, the best collateral, we could have the most compelling, you know, language and, and we, and, you know, the, the role family and our extended family of our company, we could speak that language very fluently. But the reality is that the sale, we're not there when that designer or that builder is standing in that showroom. Mm. They're standing with, you know, whoever's working in the showroom. So are they capable of, of telling your story well? And that's something that, you know, it's, it's hard to do, but the, the clearer the message it can be and consistently uh, broadcast out across all of the stages or positions of, of selling and specifying is something that people really need to focus on. And then that balancing of you know, when you have sub-brands versus, you know, you're going to say your company brand. Uh, you know, we, we learned a, a tough lesson early on when uh, my father started the business. You know, he envisioned it really as a sales and marketing you know, business. It wasn't about creating a branded. The product was the star. And that product's brand was the one that we promoted. Hmm. And for the first 10 years of our company, we were very successful. And that brand became very well known. And at some point, you know, they severed the relationship with us. So when they said, we're not going to renew the contract, everyone knew that brand in the marketplace, let's say from a specifier standpoint. And that was gosh, 70, 80% of our revenue <laughs> with that one product. And so we had to re kind of invent ourselves. And fortunately, our company had built great trust with our customer base. And so they, Again, that relationship, we were given great opportunities as we started to bring in new products and create new relationships. We found a home and a venue to, to promote them. And again, that, that you know, good customer service that we were known for and that good sense of understanding and you know, our clients' needs and, and concerns really paid dividends in creating opportunities for us 
but never again. We would, you know, as we, we started then to really, you know, conceive of the company as a, as a brand and, and really talk about the role brand. And there were, you know, and role, it, it kind of evolved over the years. I mean, you know, you, you don't build a brand overnight. Brand is not something you can, you can't buy a brand. You know, you build a brand. And it was 30 some years of us, you know, doing what we did and doing the right things day in and day out. And just, you know, the brand gets built incrementally. It's, it's really built on a foundation of, of trust, right? And eventually, you know, we, we were always marketing. I think we were always speaking to not only our, you know, B2B, but we always had an eye on the B2C. But being a relatively small company, we always invested in marketing, but we just didn't have a big advertising budget. But we looked at it as, you know, it wasn't about just creating overwhelming consumer reach. It was also about showing that investment, we would call merchandising the advertising, because it was a, it was a signal back to our customers that we were investing in our own brand. We were investing for them. We wanted to create, you know, a pull as well as, you know, the push through their distribution channel. And that was something that, that ultimately, I think, helped differentiate us and, and help build our brand with our distribution partners over the years. And, you know, again, would be, you know, would help that be a go-to or role would be a go-to product because, hey, they're, they're investing in you know, speaking to that end user, uh, speaking to that designer, creating some awareness of the brand. Even, you know, early on, I think the first ad that my father ever purchased was in Architectural Digest. Now that sounds pretty major, but at the time, Art Digest had what they call a California edition. So it was just, hmm. you could do a section of advertising that was distributed just within the California market. So as opposed to being a $45,000 ad, it was maybe a $5,000 ad. It's a good deal. Right? <laughs> right, good deal. And of course, the distribution was obviously much, much limited. Now, we were based in Southern California, so that kind of made sense. But what we did was we, part of the deal, like, you know, give us lots of extra copies of the magazine. So let's say you get 50, 75, copies of the magazine and then we sent them all to chicago and new york and florida gave them to our reps that go out and you know, walk into your showrooms and say here's architectural digest and look at you know role is advertising architectural digest to create awareness and we might not have said that it was just showing up in california but i mean it showed that we were you know doing our part and i think that was something that we always made a point to make sure that you know, you, you didn't invest in marketing without making sure that everyone in the sales structure was aware. And again, that was also that part of educating them to, to be speaking that same language. Again, that's something incremental, but again, over time, that really helped build the brand. This has been super helpful, Greg. I, I really appreciate you sharing all this information. If someone wants to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, sure. They can email me, greg at the role model. That's R-O-H-L model.com. Or I've got a website, the role model.com as well. That's great. Excellent. And for our listeners out there, if you want more great content like this, go to venvio.com slash podcast. Until next time, I'm Zach Williams alongside Beth Popniklov. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.